Welcome to the Subtitle Podcast. Today we're joined by me, Anna, Ashish, Emily, and Victoria. I'm Anna. I'm coming to you from Taipei, Taiwan. I'm Victoria, coming from Chicago. Hey, I'm Emily, also coming from Chi-Town. This is Ashish, coming to you from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. <laughs> Today we'll be discussing Drive My Car by Rosuke Hamaguchi, released 2021. Thank you all for being here. Let's dive in. So maybe we could do a little plot summary or... So the movie takes place in kind of two distinct phases. I would even say it is a composed of a prelude and uh, then the main... Uh, story of the film seems to take place in Hiroshima and the main characters in the first part his name the main character's name is Kafuko he's a an actor um, who uses a very unique strategy in his uh, plays which is that he combines uh, actors who use different languages in the same play the other main character in the first part of the film is his wife Oto. She is also a writer, um, or an ar- she's also an artist, and she has taken up screenplay writing in the recent years of her career. She writes for TV. Her stories often come to her as a result of sort of like a dreamlike trance that she uh, recounts to her husband, who then tells her the following day what she said. So that's kind of part one. Part two, I guess, maybe it's like the chunk, biggest chunk of the movie. And it's like, I guess, Kafuku like, moves to Hiroshima and starts working on an adaptation of Chekhov's Uncle Vanya um, using the same approach that Victoria was talking about, combining people from different countries, speaking different languages. And um, basically, he usually plays the lead in these plays, but for some reason, we don't know yet, he decides to step aside and uh, the person that comes in and, you know, he ends up casting him to play the lead is the actor with whom his wife was cheating with him on, um, a guy named Takatsuki. And uh, uh, basically, you know, there's like another ensemble of, of actors from like Taiwan, the Philippines, Japan. And uh, I, I guess... Maybe like a conflict emerges in, in the beginning where um, he gets to this theater festival and they force him to use their like driver that they provide him. And uh, he loves like driving himself so he can like drive to work and memorize his lines using this like really idiosyncratic method where like his wife records one side of the play and he like recites it. And uh, I guess the bulk of this part is like him deepening his relationship with this driver who becomes like a close friend or almost like a almost like a father daughter relationship and then sort of working through his own trauma from losing his wife and you know becoming someone who can kind of re-engage with himself so i guess one way to start this out is um thinking about the title of the film and going off of our ideas about the car itself as a character, as a space, 
in the film. Yes. So I was thinking about that a lot, the car as its own psychological space, and it kind of represents, like, physically, a physical embodiment of, like, if he's letting somebody in. That's why he's so resistant to letting a driver into this space. It kind of sets up who, where he's at emotionally um, at the beginning, or at the, like, second half of the film, second after the prelude. Somebody who's guarded, somebody who, in a way, is... Yeah, not open to letting anybody in, but through kind of happenstance and kind of just some bureaucratic reasoning, there's this forced contact is has to happen, and so through that they they help each other heal from their own trauma and um, and what I what I thought about the the relationship between the driver and the um, and the main character kind of resembles like um bloom in ulysses whose whose son also his whose kid also dies whose wife is also cheating on him um but at the end of the book is about how does one find equanimity in that situation it's really beautiful that relationship that they they forge in this car even at the end uh uh, when when he asks, can we drive to Hokkaido? He finds like the northernmost tip of of Japan that um, would give them the maximum amount of time in the car. I would say the 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 meaning of the car like changes over over the course of the the film. What did you guys think? I feel like one thought that has occurred to me recently about the role of the car and the title of the film being "Drive My Car." You could think of, you know, our lives as a figurative journey in a car. We see Kafuku go through these different phases of his life in which he is more or less in control of that ride. I feel like in the first part, he is trying very hard to maintain control and maintain the guise that he has full control over his life or that he can at least understand the characters of his life that he can understand Otto, that he doesn't need to hear out, you know, what what is happening um, in her internally. Um, You know, he avoids these interactions. Although I I think the movie does a really good job of not casting judgment on Otto or Kafuku or any of the characters, really. But then in the second half of the film, the car takes on a different role because it's not only, you know... Kafuku is driving himself around and engaging in the solitary process of creating his own life story. He actually like unwillingly invites this other person to share that space with him and he's able to grow even more through that shared journey um, and that shared exploration that he can he can undergo with her. So it felt like drive my car is like this imperative to someone else like help me take control of my life come join in this space with me um and i thought that was a pretty beautiful theme yeah i like these a lot these are really helpful ways to think about it for me i think like the way that i also think about it is sort of like the inevitability of like like i think of it as life too and like um it's sort of like i think it's it parallels the way that he like it reminds me of the salesman the ashgar farhadi movie which is also sort of about a human relationship that parallels like putting on a play um, 
And so it's like in this movie, like, you know, the play doesn't seem to be going that well for a really long time. And, you know, characters ask Kafuku questions like, what, what do you not like? What do you like? And he always sort of just says, like, you know, do the scene again. You know, <laughs> he always is like very authoritarian. And people like chafe under it. And the play only starts getting better once he starts like trusting his actors more. And maybe a similar way to how he like has to trust uh, Misaki, like his driver with his car. Um, because he loses Oto. And I think there's like the, the scenes that I remember sort of like are these scenes where he's alone and there are just like tracking shots or like shots, you know, just driving. And it just reminds me of this idea that like maybe like life is like driving a car. Like you can you know, you're on a road and you can only really go in one direction. And so, like, he loses Oto and then you just have to keep on living. Like, you have to keep on driving. And, you know, there's a version of that where he just sort of, like, has to shelve his trauma and, like, keep living his life. But I also think, like, when he invites Misaki into that space and, you know, shares and unpacks trauma with her, it's like, you know the heart the car is maybe still going in the same direction but like you could say like you know i guess it you know, gets kind of like that sisyphean kind of like you know seeing the rock and like gladly pushing it again like he's still driving but maybe like he's more in control even if the road hasn't changed or the car hasn't changed well i i think there was a bit of a change at the end when like you guys were saying it's like let's solve my problems through solving your problems and the car does change direction when he says let's go to Hokkaido which is about like I'm invested in uh understanding like my role in like helping you initiate your own healing process by let's go back to the your family home where your your mom and you and you lived and the like dilapidated home that is there now I think that was like a major turning point for the, the character's evolution of, you know, understanding how other people can be the, the key to your own self-understanding. And helping people heal helps you heal. Yeah, I think there's something, yeah, like, echoing what everybody has said already. I thought that was a very beautiful way to understand empathy and the necessity of other people in your own self-understanding sometimes. Yeah, I also thought about the car as this, uh, like, liminal space, literally, between, like, the private private home and the work public space. And so this was, like, an, a space where you could, yeah, where all these changes could take place. Um, and it's sort of like... Um, there was, there's this, uh, I learned in my anthropology classes about rites of passage, and one of the key stages of rites of pa- passage are being, are being put into a liminal space um, where things are no longer, um, yeah, things are like mixed up and you feel isolated and you feel alone, but it's in these, in, uh, in these liminal spaces, if other people 
are added to that space together you uh form like a different type of understanding of yourself and community um so that's what i've been thinking about a lot about the car as the space and as well uh the i would love to hear you guys' thoughts on like the use of sound in the in the car or lack thereof the use of dialogue or lack thereof in the car. There's like a lot of nonverbal um, communication that goes on in the car between the two main characters that are so transformational for them, yet um, somehow we can interpret silence and like body language and just like... Uh, eye contact through the mirror and things like that. Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on use of sound or um, dialogue versus non-dialogue. There's a lot of non-dialogue communication running throughout this entire film. I think that's one of the major points of it. But to, to go specifically into the car, um, I rem- what is like even in the trailer is like when they raise the like cigarette above the space the um through the roof of the car and they i mean it kind of shows the parallel journey that they're both going through but it also kind of shows like a mutual respect that can be conveyed in a gesture of like putting the cigarette outside of the car i don't know if that's like conventional in japan but um the fact that they're trying to like i think it shows like a, a shared respect um through a very small gesture, um, basically not smoking up the whole car. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like it ties in with the use of cigarettes in this movie, where, like, the act of smoking a cigarette is, like, a way of, like, relieving tension. And then, you know, it's something that Kafku tends to do alone in the beginning of the movie. And then as his relationship with Misaki gets better, you, you see them sharing cigarettes outside. And then I feel like that's the moment where, like, they're, like, comfortable enough that he's, like, go ahead, like, smoke in the car, you know? Like, I trust you. And it's not just that he's trusting her, it's that she's also trusting, you know, their relationship to the point. Because in the beginning of the movie, she wouldn't even, like, be in his car when it was cold and she was waiting for him. Um, She would, like, stay outside and read a book. And so, you know, I feel like that scene was really powerful because they're kind of... The car is kind of this, like marker of distance like he has the exclusive claim on it and she's afraid of like going any further than their professional relationship will allow because she takes their professional relationship so seriously um like when they're driving to Hokkaido even though it's like as friends now you know she doesn't let him drive at all you know she's still like I am the driver like that's what I do I will drive the entire night uh and we'll get there in like 24 hours or something um so yeah i just loved like the way that they that they use like just like basic things that characters do for themselves as a way to illustrate a relationship like physically visually yeah it's interesting how that act of almost like breaking something that could be seen in a way as breaking the sanctity of the car as a pure space of a space that he has you know, kept pristine for the decades that he's been driving it or however long he's owned the car, that this act of sharing a cigarette with Mitsuki, um, 
uh, Misaki in the car becomes a symbol of their camaraderie and also I think a symbol of his growth um, his ability to accept assistance in in his own process of treating his trauma and also provide assistance provide a light to someone else that these like can become symbols of their their shared growth um and not only just in i think i liked what you brought up ashish about his strategy toward um communicating with his actors i think you can even see that growth and that ability to stop pretending that everything is pristine and um that one methodology will always work that you know the um authoritative way is the best way um but instead accepting that life is an imperfect process of growth and growing alongside others um i think that's the cigarette became a beautiful symbol of that and the fact that they're sitting in the front seat side by side as opposed to her being kind of like a chauffeur to him yeah that's really beautiful what you just said that really sums up a lot victoria that was and then i guess at the end of the movie um misaki has the car and she's in korea so like what's oh, going on yeah. there Oh, wow, that was a whole section I did not understand. I forgot about that. <laughs> and it was so shocking that they had masks. It was like COVID in Korea. It was like, wait a sec, this is like really, really present, this story. Mm-hmm. It's not set in the past. I, yeah, yeah, that was just very, like, shocking to me. So many questions. Cause it was it's... shocking to see, like, COVID in a film, you know, like, not not like the, the film is about COVID, but like COVID is like an ambient reality, like taking place in a narrative film. That mm-hmm. was just interesting to me. I tried to do the math in terms of like when the movie takes place, because there's on at the beginning of the movie, um, there's like a a sign for Kafuku and Oto's child it says like died at this age. And then there was something else where they're like, oh, you know, if you were, he tells uh, Misaki, like, if my kid was alive, he would be your age now. So I, like, did the math, and it was like, oh, this movie is taking place in, like, 2019, 2020, or something like that. And then, you know, basically it fast-forwards, like, a year or two max, and we're in Korea, and it's COVID. Um, But then Misaki's scar is gone. So then I was thinking, like, oh, well, it's probably not enough time that it healed on its own. And Misaki was saying, like, oh, they offered... The doctors at the time when I was injured, like, offered to do, like, a surgery that would get rid of the scar, but I felt like holding on to it um, because she's, like, holding on to her guilt for, like, essentially, like, kind of letting her mother die in that mudslide. But, you know, it's been less than a year or two. She's in Korea. She's probably chosen to you know, have surgery to remove the scar. And uh, she has the car, you know, so Kafka's trusted her enough with the car, she's driving it herself. Either she owns it now, or they live together, or what's going on? So many questions. Um, but I, I, thought, I thought that was, it's like an interesting, like, transnational element of the film, where, like, you know, 
the characters are from so many places, and two of the main characters are Korean, and then uh, the, the film ends in Korea. And when you're shooting in the pandemic, like, you can't just, like, go to Korea from Japan. Like, quarantine is, like, a thing. Like, it was a very intentional and expensive decision to, like, end the movie in Korea. So I'm just very curious, like, what you guys think about that and about the whole transnational themes that are, like, running throughout the movie. Yeah, because I think it just shows the... Or, yeah, we can get more into the transnational theme, but the idea of, like, literal, like, movement to different, like, locations as a way to, like, show the, you know, the person is able to move on. Whereas, like, we when we see the two characters, they are in, like, stasis. They're, like you were saying, kind of, like, tied in some sort of, like, psychological way to their trauma. They like reveling in it. They like reliving the same feeling. Like, the guy likes listening to the tapes over and over, and he does not want that situation to change. Just like she doesn't want to remove the scar. There's something, maybe it is guilt, um, that, you know, kind of masochistic kind of attachment to feeling this painful thing in a loop um, that they help each other break out of. Um, so I think the, the idea of it being transnational, like it ends up in a different location at the end. It signals this kind of moving, um, physically, but also like emotionally, like I really want to discuss like the idea of the play and the idea of acting and the idea of the languages because there's so much going on there. I really was absolutely in love with the idea of a play that was in multiple languages. I thought that was like the most amazing and beautiful metaphor, one for the whole play but also for human relationships um, where Learn empathy is this process of learning a language almost like learning somebody else's um, language, and in the play, it the maybe the idea is that you can't really know somebody fully. You you, you might never be speaking the same language, but there, but despite that, there is like um, a sort of uh, nonverbal communication and feeling of like understanding and connection um, that that can be shared, you know, despite that, that barrier. Yeah. But I was like, has a play like this ever existed? Because it really should. And I really, really loved the, the character who couldn't speak, uh, the mute character and the way that the play ended with her, her piece, basically like her telling the story through the, the hand motions. Um, yeah, I thought that was utterly transcendent. What did you guys think of, of that element of the film? 
Well, I agree that having actors who come from different countries, who speak different languages, share the same stage was such a beautiful concept. And I also wondered if it had ever happened in real life and thought that it absolutely should if it hasn't. Um, I thought the play being Chekhov and it being a story about a man and his... I guess maybe later years or a midlife crisis, so to speak, uh, going through a process of reflection and and processing disappointment with the way that he's lived his life um, and the the person he's become and kind of coping with that that experience was an interesting mirror to the the experience that Kafuku was going through. And I thought it brought up an interesting question of identity and roles, the roles that we take on in our lives, throughout our lives, um, and how those interact with the roles that artists choose to play on stage or even that individuals who aren't artists choose to play in their lives. Um, At some point, Kafuku says that he can't keep playing the uncle uh, character anymore. He's past that point in his life um, or... I guess I'm not really sure why he wasn't able to play that, but it it brought up some questions for me about identity and how I, our identities are represented in so many ways. Um, our language is absolutely one way that we express our identity, although having so many individuals taking part in the same play, telling the same story in different languages indicates that even across different languages, uh, there's like a universal communication that can happen. Um, But then beyond that, like, how do we express our identities in ways that aren't linked to our language, but that are um, tied to the trauma that we carry with us or the the challenges that we experience as individuals? I think those are really good points. I think like, Kind of like you're saying, Victoria, like, I remember that point where he says he can't play uh, Vanya himself. And I think it, I think it's when he was talking to Takatsuki and he said, Chekhov scares me because the text drags out the real you and forces you to face it. And I just can't do that anymore. So I think it was, like Anna was saying, like that transformational trip to Hokkaido where he finally does achieve kind of this ability to like look himself in the face by like playing Vanya um and so I I think it's like I also love I mean all of us I think love the the multiple languages element one thing I love is that nobody ever asks him like why do you do this (laughs) like you know it's just assumed that this is the thing he does and we just kind of move on from there Like, I kept expecting one of the actors to get frustrated and be like, why are we doing this, you know? (laughs) And it never happens. Like, he never has to explain his concept. I think the closest it gets to explaining why it's in the story itself is when Takatsuki is talking to Kafuku in the car. uh, And they're, like, one really, like, pivotal conversation where they're talking about Oto. Um, And Takatsuki basically says, like, you might never actually know Oto, and you might actually never know another person as much as you want to ever in your life. Like, if you try, if you could look deeply into their heart, you might just see something that hurts you. So what you really should do is, like, 
spend your whole life learning to like look at your own heart and appreciate what's there and um <clears throat> i thought that made this whole commentary on empathy in the movie really interesting and nuanced because i don't think it's necessarily saying i mean i think it's partly saying like oh empathy is like learning someone else's language but i think it's also saying like to an extent you'll never understand someone else's language um because that's the mistake that Janice the uh, Taiwanese character um she she makes that mistake when she's she like gets involved with Takatsuki um they like, have an affair and you know um basically you learn that like she did that because she was trying to understand his lines better and she was like thinking if she understands his lines that she can react better and somehow she tries that and then the scene that they try together becomes worse and she tells Kafuku oh i think it's worse somehow because i tried to learn takatsuki's lines um like counterintuitively and so it seems like weirdly there's this constant sort of theme the movie keeps exploring of like empathy not necessarily being like directly trying to learn about other people but like being comfortable with yourself and being comfortable with like you know trusting other people and like trusting that you're not going to know things but still you know putting faith in them that they can help you on your own your own life's journey yes yes honestly okay i keep bringing this up but it really does remind me of the last chapter or second to last chapter in ulysses where he talks about his lover like also just similar to um oto talks about Molly Bloom and he's like I am just a one in an infinite series of lovers for her and there was people before me there will be people after me and this kind of like acceptance in the unknowability of this um yeah I think rather than trying to like you know have this utter control I think he was trying to like like Victoria was saying in the car when he was like listening to the tapes and like I need to like control the situation I need to like know in the totality like who this person is and I'm plagued by the fact that I don't because you know there was this affair that I it's a big mystery that's eluding me as to like this is outside of my control this is outside of my knowing um I think the the biggest gift that he gets from his his enemy who ends up being the key to his own understanding and his own acceptance is um yeah accepting that he'll he might never know somebody completely and that's that's okay and that's mm-hmm. that's that's the nature of knowing people that there yeah. is no such thing as like a to- totalizing kind of knowledge and i yeah i really like what you said ashish about it's almost like to know other people or to be in a trusting relationship with others is what needs to happen first a prerequisite to that is is like knowing yourself and that like delving deeper into yourself is kind of a means of being in communion with others Mm um yeah and just like that kind of like odd relationship like kind of I don't know, directly proportional kind of thing where, like, the deeper you go into you, the deeper you can go into others. And, um, yeah. Yeah, I just also just thought that was so beautifully freeing that this imagined enemy that he had, this, like, 
lover that you could a repository of like all your fears all your projected anxieties can go on to this guy that you don't know who like your wife cheated on you with once you finally meet him it's it's the source of his healing it's the source of his being able to accept what's happened and it's also a way of knowing his own wife in a way like he finally realizes that you know he says oh well I didn't I barely knew this person either she was a bigger mystery to me than she was to you and you got to have you know the really good moments with her you you were able to have like a whole life with her so you really shouldn't be jealous of me because she was kind of just using me <laughs> as like a who knows what yeah so I just thought that that was very like beautiful I don't know like freeing to to, to realize that your perceived en- enemy could be your means of your, the key to your own self yeah I like that point a lot and I think it gets into this whole tension of knowing and not knowing trusting and not trusting because that key moment in the car where they're you know Kafku and Takatsuki are unpacking to each other it's only on my second viewing of this movie that I realized that that moment is taking place right after Takatsuki has beat this guy to death, pretty much. Oh, the guy who was like following him around that. and taking photos of him. Um, because, you know, right before that, they're in a bar for the second time, and Takatsuki sees that guy is taking photos of him again, and then he runs, you know, the guy runs away, and then Takatsuki also runs away, and then, you know, they both come back and get in the car and they have that conversation. And, it's, you know, it's only my second time. Like, oh, that's like where he like beat that guy to a pulp. And then the guy died in the hospital later. And so it's kind of like, like we're talking about where like, that's the moment where you think as the viewer, you're finally understanding Takatsuki. Like you finally, you know, him and Kafuku are having this moment where they finally are no longer enemies. They finally understand each other. But actually, Kafku didn't understand him because, you know, he didn't understand that he'd committed this, like, serious crime (laughs) right beforehand that ends up getting him, like, arrested and removed from the play. But then, at at the same time, like, it's that secret crime that sets up Kafku to be, like, forced to play the lead in his own play that forces him to, like, you know, need to go to Hokkaido with Misaki and you know, have this whole revelation of the self. So this movie feels like very, like, very intentional, you know, (laughs) in, like, its exploration of, like, how there's not an easy binary between, like, harmful and helpful actions and how, like, we're all guided forward on this narrative journey through, like, what a character doesn't know at a certain time and just needs to kind of trust that, like, events will kind of work out for them. Yeah, I agree. That was one of my favorite parts of the movie was the moral ambiguity and the complexity of each character in the film. That so much wisdom, in fact, maybe the key piece of wisdom in the entire movie is also delivered by the movie's anti-hero or the person that you're set up to feel maybe the most amount of disgust toward because of his relationship with an underage person and then the way that he you know responds to paparazzi like behavior that doesn't negate the wisdom that he's able to bring to his relationship with kafuku and the reverence that he had for his relationship with oto uh similarly in oto's character you know so much of our like 
media condemns cheating as unilaterally wrong in every situation. I really like the way that this movie took a sort of morally ambiguous approach toward her behavior and toward her actions and treated her like with a lot of compassion um, and allowed the viewer to kind of make their own determination of what they think about Otto and what they think about the way that she lives. Um, And then I think maybe the most extreme example in the film is Misaki's mother. That character is incredibly complicated and incredibly uh, multi-layered. And everyone, or, you know, it's, she actually has a split personality. Like, she has something that seems like a real mental illness. They're still able to engage um, when she's in her childlike state with Misaki in a, a very tender and connected way so even then we're not completely condemning you know her mother for uh, her flaws either um i thought it was really awesome and beautiful and i can't think of many other stories that have this kind of ambiguous approach toward the judgment of characters and uh, which actions should be condemned which actions should not be condemned so I, I like the way that it treated that. Yeah, I had the sim- a similar feeling. I thought that was like the most radical. It was like a radical acceptance and like radical understanding where there was like no villain. You could not point to like a villain in the film. It was just understanding. And even, yeah, you grew to like empathize with the, you know, the guy who like was having, was fooling around with the underage person Well it seems like you can see his trajectory of, like, he's trying to, like, there's some sort of, like, yearning or, like, missing part of his life that he's kind of doing this in a kind of reactive way. Mm-hmm. Even the cheating on the with the wife was kind of a reaction out of some pain that was going on with him. So instead of being like, I hate this guy, you're like, wait, like, you, the fact that you even did that was, was um, a reaction to something that was going on deeper inside of you like a a painful thing that you don't need to like envy this person you can you can approach the situation through understanding and I thought genuinely I grew as a person emotionally evolved um after like seeing this film which I feel like and it, it really did kind of like check off like make me pull out myself and and really like look at my own life in the way that I like you know feelings towards different things and I feel like that's exactly what like good art is supposed to do it's it's a it's a way that you transform with the film and you're able to kind of be in life in a more I don't know understanding mode um Mm -hmm. in in a more aware and accepting kind of mode and I was just like wow like I don't remember like a piece of art that has this is like the I don't know like a really stand out piece of art for me for that reason. Totally. Yeah, I, I really, I, I totally, I love that we're talking about this idea of like acceptance and moral ambiguity. And I appreciate, Victoria, that you bring up the split personality of Misaki's mom, because it makes me think of how basically like this movie has this theme that, you know, everybody essentially in this, or I guess a lot of people in this movie 
develop some form of split personality or estrangement from the self as a response to trauma. Uh, because Oto, basically, it's when Oto and Kafuku's child dies. After that is when Oto starts having a, like a second personality that she's not aware of um, that emerges only after she's like had sex with Kafuku or I guess with other people too. Um, and, you know... It's like this other personality that comes up with a story that she doesn't remember when she wakes up. And, you know, Kafuku has to, like, tell her what he remembers of it. Same, same way that how, like, you know, presumably, like, Misaki's mom, when she, like, beats Misaki, she, like, can't kind of cope with the, the guilt of having done that. And so she, like, creates this split personality of, like, all a child, sort of, like, you know, wanting to, like, play with Misaki and then... Misaki is like, well, at least, you, at least you're being nice to me now. <laughs> like, I'll play with you, you know? And then, you Kavaku, like, when Oto dies, he can't act in plays anymore. Because acting in a play is... It's another personality, right? You're becoming another person. But weirdly, like, he can't do that because he can't face himself anymore. So, there's, like, this really... I don't even know if I have a finished thought about it. But, like, a really interesting nuanced sort of idea that like you know even in the daily events of our lives like you know we are engaging multiple selves and we're like performing to other people um and a play is sort of a way of doing that maybe more intentionally in a way that connects you with your you know with your inner self learning to unpack and process trauma with other people is a way of like reconciling disparate selves As we can see, the play was a, like a means of like learning. When you're playing a role, it's not exactly like you're lying, or it's not exactly bad. It can be a means through which, like, greater connection or like understanding can take place. Just like in the the case with the the daughter and the mom, like she accepted the role of like, okay, I'm not gonna point out the fact that you just turned into a child, but I'm going to like suspend my disbelief in this situation and. Through this kind of like we we kind of step out of ourselves to then connect, I think it's kind of saying that that happens in life, and it's it's not. I don't know, like playing a role doesn't mean you're lying or like being dishonest all the time. Then again, there are moments in the play in the film where, um, like for example, he he sees that they you know her, the wife is cheating. He goes to the hotel that's like in Japan still, and then skypes the skypes the wife and is like, "Oh yeah, I'm in. Was it Russia? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I'm in Russia. Um, it's great over here." And she's like, 
yeah, like, they're also suspending, they're playing roles, you know, they're, they're not confronting the fact that, okay, I now know that you're cheating on me. When you continue this lie, like this, like, uh, suspended disbelief in, in this case, it, it might have been, you know, tied to, like, her having the brain hemorrhage. Like, you can't sustain the lie, like, that long without there being, like, um, collapse. So I, I don't know. What do you guys think? It, there's so many things in this film that's, like, both and, and then you make a thesis, but then it presents the antithesis. So it's not like you can, ha- like, it, the whole argument of the film is very, like, black and white. Um, I think, it, again, it shows ambiguity a lot, like, both sides of a lot of things. Yeah, what did you guys think of that situation? Like, the the continued lie that he was existing with his... When he the wife was still alive, but he knew that she was cheating. I mean, so Oto, uh, she says, like, let's talk. Like, let's have a discussion um, mm. right before she died. And then oh. um, Kafuku goes for his thing, and then... Um, we don't realize this until later, but he confesses to Misaki that instead of going home right after his event, he, like, just kept driving for, like, hours. And then, you know, he was, like, unable to face her um, because he thought that it would be, like, the end of their relationship. And then when he finally gets home, she's died of a, of a aneurysm or a hemorrhage or something. Uh, and so then he, like, blames himself because he's like, oh, if I if I was strong enough to just, like, you know be honest with her like she wanted to be honest with me then maybe she wouldn't have died yeah it felt like he was not and this definitely comes up in the conversation with Takashi, although i don't remember precisely the way that it is discussed between them but he's hiding the fact that he's hurt from her he's hiding it because he doesn't want to lose her he's acting out of fear or not acting because he is fearful And I think that that really underlines the theme that the movie has of the importance of self-honesty and self-inspection and then bringing, I guess, when appropriate, the products of that self-inspection to the person that you're trying to deepen your relationship with. Um, And then the regret that can occur if you don't go through those steps. Yeah, because he seems to be just kind of lying to himself in order to preserve this this appearance of them being in a, you know, perfect relationship. When maybe what he would have discovered if he had gone to her and told her how hurt he was about what, what was happening, that could have been a, a better way of them deepening the relationship. And he would have, you know, found from her that she she cared for him deeply, but she also was manifesting her needs in this way so yeah just like the complexity of of relationships and the importance of navigating that complexity rather than of avoiding seemed to be maybe one way of reading that yeah i totally agree victoria and i think it you know it's related to to what anna was saying about like small lies and big lies because like like anna was saying like there's like it kind of he kind of has like no reason to lie about not being in russia but you know, that small lie is like a way of him creating a clear enough distinction between what he knows is the truth and what he wants to present to his wife. Um, because he knows if he says, like, I'm still in Japan, then there's, 
a chance that you know she'll be like, "Oh shit!" You know, <laughs> like, did he come home? <laughs> like, what did he see? And then later, when they have sex after the you know remembrance of their child, she has another story about you know ending the the TV drama narrative and the um, you know the the character in that drama being a reincarnation of a lamprey and. The next scene, you can tell that he remembers because he's watching YouTube videos of lampreys, <laughs> and then you know, <laughs> which is a great As scene. As one does. <laughs> it's a pretty great footage. But then, but then Otto asks him like, "Oh, do you remember my story from last night?" And he says like, "Nope, sorry." And she's like, "Oh, I guess it wasn't that good." Um, but then clearly he remembered, and you know he brings it up with Takatsuki later. Like it becomes like the you know most important story that she's told him. Yeah, it's just interesting that there's like multiple times when you know these like rather insignificant like white lies are a way for characters to like intentionally distance themselves from each other and cover up like the more more significant things that they don't feel they can share. That theme is also definitely taken up in um, the Chekhov play, too. Uncle Vanya. Yeah, the Uncle Vanya's, uh, like, attitude toward his own responsibility about on, on the path of his life. Um, and I believe there's even a line in the play that plays as Kofuku is driving in the car that Otto says. What a, like, profound thing that Otto is the one who you know, articulates this line. Uh, she says, you know, the the truth probably isn't a, as bad as not knowing it, kind of mm-hmm. something to that effect, that it's better to actually know the truth because it's possible that it's even more harmful to not know it than to know it. So, yeah, the little lies, evasion of truth, evasion of self-exploration and the consequences mm-hmm. of that. Another interesting point is that some characters seem to be more capable of that process of self-exploration than others. Uh, Misaka's mom is not capable of understanding self, um, but she engages in a lot of the same coping mechanisms that we see other characters engaging in. Takashiki is, I think, a really interesting, complicated character because he's the voice of reason at some points, and then he's also like a force of violence at other points, um, violence and harm. And ultimately he's held accountable. The force that holds him accountable is the law. It comes and finds him. But I think it's interesting to think about how much was he holding himself accountable. I'm curious too what what we make of this idea of like storytelling in the movie because it starts with Otto sort of subconsciously narrating these stories that we could say maybe like reveal like a self within her that's always going to be kind of unknowable and then there's like this constant effort throughout the movie to like put on a a story in terms of like putting on this play I don't know I think maybe it ties into this idea of like knowing or like not being able to know a person the idea of like artistic expression and storytelling maybe like putting on a play or like telling a story is like the closest you can get to like revealing the depths of your soul or yourself, I guess. 
and then it's always going to be a subjective interpretation when someone like hears it or watches it. Like they are not going to know what you intended. Like neither Takatsuki nor、uh, Kafuku like knows what the meaning of Oto's stories are, and the audience is not going to know intimately what Kafuku or the actors are trying to say with their performances. And so it's kind of like in the same way that maybe like someone speaks a different language and you try to translate for yourself. Like someone articulates themselves through some kind of like narrative art form, and it's an exercise in like empathy and understanding to like subjectively interpret that as a listener or as an audience. Doesn't this just go back to what we were discussing about like, yeah, we will never truly understand what other people are saying, even if we're speaking the same language, even if we're watching the same play, but. It's about like the emotional response that you have to trust is like your own, and yeah, I think that's the only way for you to interpret like a play is to reflect on it from your own perspective, and therefore that's like a way of like looking to yourself in order to understand what the art or like the other person. I think it's just like another version of the metaphor.、I'm、curious what people's thoughts were on some of the other characters. I don't know. I'm obsessed with the girl who can't speak. I just have never seen such a thing in my life. Like I've never seen like a a film represent that and how like pivotal her wisdom was, though she was not speaking at all. And we see the like her and her husband invite them to dinner, and、um, through that, like the the driver and the the、uh, play director, like. I don't know. It's like I don't have formed thoughts on it, but it was just. I think they were they were also pivotal for those two characters to like become closer as well, in a way. The fact of like knowing this that Korean mute woman and how she's like existed through life has really helped the other characters. I just get the sense that it did. I think it's interesting to think about. Like we we've, we've been having this conversation about how like even if you're married to someone for so long, perhaps you won't actually know them. But then in the case of the Korean couple, they're the only two that can understand each other through sign language, and like they have this other way of speaking to each other. And o- people can only like people can only gather a translation of that.、Mm-hmm. So I think it's another example of the both and going on in the movie. Like yes. There are like extramarital relationships involved with,、um, yeah. In obviously in the other relationship, I'm speaking, but there are extramarital relationships, and there's like many different like facets of people that you'll never really understand. But there are still like these insular relationships that do form, and like there are ways that only two people can understand each other. Yeah, I think that is really helpful. I think you do get the sense that of all the relationships, theirs is the most like mutually understanding. Didn't one of them have to like learn an entirely new language? Like, I I forget、yeah. the details of it.、Yeah. Ashish, what were they? You watched it three times.、Yeah. <laughs> That's nine hours. <laughs> <laughs> You're in Hokkaido by now. Yeah, <laughs> I'm at that mountain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know Yun Yunsu.、Um, he learned Korean sign language. So that he could talk to Yuna. But Yuna isn't she originally a dancer or 
her career isn't originally acting and she only transitions to acting because she can no longer dance but it's interesting that that character Mm -hmm. is the sort of she's the way that like communication through motion manifests in the in the film both in the like her sign language um and her past as a dancer that was just amazing how like i was like the most moved by her audition for the the play more than any of the actors who were speaking in language that i maybe had a chance at understanding the only times i cried was when she was doing her like exegesis on on stage and during yeah the i literally same same that one was the most like moving thing i've ever that was yes i concur i thought let me add a couple of I thought a couple of things about that were interesting. Like one was like, both uh, Yuna and Oto have a moment where they lose a child, and all of a sudden they need to like reinvent themselves. You know, Oto loses the child, and then it takes a long time, and then finally she develops this like split personality that can start creating these like award-winning stories. And same thing with Yuna; she's a dancer, has a miscarriage, and has to like reinvent herself as like an actor. And I think, like, the relationships also parallel, maybe, because, like, in Oto and um, Kafuku's marriage, you could say that the marriage fails or that Oto dies because of their failure to communicate. And Yunsu and Yuna, their entire relationship is based on, like, learning to communicate. Uh, like, Yunsu, like, learning Yuna's language and very intentionally, like, bridging the gap between two people in that way. You know, it's another way that, like, you're sort of, in the in the film, realize you can't know people, but you still have to trust them, because uh, Kafuku asks Yun-Su, like, oh, how do you happen to speak Korean Sign Language? And then Yun-Su is like, oh, can we go to my house <laughs> for dinner? I need to apologize for something. You'll see. Oh, yeah, that's... <laughs> Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it turns out they're married, um, but then it, it works out, right? Like, no harm was really done. So, it's another one of those small moments where, like, not knowing someone isn't necessary, or not knowing the full truth isn't necessarily an impediment to, like, learning to trust people. I was just thinking, this is sort of unrelated, but we can interpret it in a way that is related. <laughs> but, um... I, during that meeting where they're in the having dinner, Watari was like, she like left the table and like started interacting with this dog, and then at the end of the movie, she's she gets her own dog, you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought like, oh maybe like there's something to be said about like she's having this like realization or like this moment where she's thinking about like nonverbal communication between humans and she realizes I don't know that I don't ha- I also haven't had don't have full thoughts on this but because I just thought of it but something about like she found some type of like importance in this other relationship with like an animal non-human being that's also nonverbal you know and she realized like oh this can be something that is powerful
I would love to talk about some of the like sh shots in the film. Maybe we have to like go over some of the scenes we already talked about, but I think those are important. The cinematography. Everything is pretty wide, you know, pretty normal wide shots. Um, but then it's like only in the car do we see close-ups really. And only in the car do people look directly into the camera when they're talking to each other, when they're talking to another character. Like in the conversation with um, that young actor guy, that was the only time when it was like super clear that to like create this intimate space, the characters are having this like crazy revelational conversation. And that's when they're also like looking into the camera. But yeah, that's just the one scene I that comes to mind when I think about that type of thing. I mean, I think it's the same thought that you had. Um, it's just like, yeah, they are like looking both into the camera. It's like a very like, um, like Ozu kind of, you know, moment in that way. I feel like I saw like one or two reviews where people were like, oh, Hamaguchi is kind of like a modern Ozu. Like he's trying to like go for similar themes in his films. And I was like, I don't know that are you just kind of saying like two Japanese directors? <laughs> like, but that moment was the one where I was like, oh, that's like an Ozu moment. Like, cause he's so famous for those like direct to the camera, you know, shot reverse shot kind of, kind of moments. And I, I really liked that it was used so intentionally in this moment where like these two characters are finally seeing each other for the first time fully. I also think it's kind of interesting that for much of the conversations, like when they're kind of getting into their own, like the the two uh the the play director and the driver when they're starting to like connect and like you know divulge more about themselves they don't have the pressure of having to look at the each other directly in the eye they can like one is like looking like this and like the other is also like there's like a bit of like tension i don't know like it's maybe easier to to communicate truth about yourself when it's not this like direct conversation like like even bodily with another person and it also kind of like shows that like a communication about yourself it's kind of like this internal process and it's the orientation of the body in the car allows them to be honest about like themselves and like open up that like space in a way that's like easier for them initially so that's why like when it's like face to face it seems like whoa like this is like a new orientation i haven't seen I haven't seen people be honest like when they're looking at each other in the eyes like that. Usually it's like them like at the car like you know thinking about it or um, like talking into the space. I, I don't know it also kind of like shows that like to connect with someone is like kind of like mm -hmm. connecting to your own thoughts. That's kind of like I, I noticed that it might have been easier for them to to connect because of the car because of how they're not facing yeah. each other. And I think that scene is pivotal too because Misaki is not talking during that scene, but then when Takatsuki leaves, Misaki tells Kafku, like, I could tell that he wasn't lying, um, you know, regardless of whether that story are, is true or not, but he believed it. He believed he was telling the truth. And then that's also, like, how Kafku communicates the story of his wife to Misaki for the first time, is through, like, telling Takatsuki when they're both in the car. Um... And so that sets the stage for, like, their journey to Hokkaido, where, you know, they open up to each other, and Misaki can finally tell him, like, 
you know, if it's not too like forward, like I think that it's not a contradiction to me that your wife loved you and had these affairs, which is I didn't realize until the you know other time I watched the movie, like she only gets that information for the first time because of that moment where, you know, we think it's the scene is presented to us as as Takatsuki and Kafuku talking just to each other in the car. Yeah, the car is such a important and significant space for the ability for people to speak truth and come to deeper understanding. I thought also maybe in the first part, the like prelude section with Oto, uh, that the room, their home, is a similarly important space because it's the space in which we see Oto um, and her ability to, you know, ascertain stories from who knows where inside herself. Um, and that importance of space also manifests in the story of the lamprey, how the character in that story feels that the room she is inside of is like underwater. And the feeling of being like suspended underwater makes her think about past lives. Maybe the car is sort of similar in that way, that the the sound of the outside world is all dampened inside a car. It's a contained space. You know, the noises that are most immediate are the noises that get the most importance. Um, And maybe that's why, you know, subconsciously, Kafuku places such importance on this. The car is the space where he can engage more deeply with plays and then that takes on like an even more important significance in the second part of the film. But just, yeah, like the auditory component there of things being confined in a small intimate space and uh, what that allows for, in addition to what you said, Anna, about the position of characters in relationship to each other, which I definitely think is also really important. That's really helpful, honestly. I think it's interesting, too, because... um... Yeah, I really like this idea of, like, the car being almost underwater and, like, linking the space of the car with this imaginary space of the lamprey girl in the story. I think it kind of goes back to M's point, too, a while back in this conversation about sound design and, like, how it's very intentional, like, whether we are getting ambient sound or we aren't. Because I think Anna, when we saw this movie, Anna said, like, oh, they kind of turned the volume up on the ambient sound in certain scenes like more than I would have liked and uh I kind of noticed that too like there's a lot of outdoor scenes where like it's actually quite like you know distracting like there's like whether in Hokkaido there's like very clear like changes between scenes because the the ambi like changes really rapidly and uh there's a scene where Kafku and Misaki are like on the beach side and a frisbee hits the ground near Misaki and it was like the most disturbing sound to me like I was like what the hell happened <laughs> you know and then it takes like a few seconds to find out it's a frisbee and you know like the audio producer or whatever in me was like okay like that was that was way too loud that was like way too intentional like it's like you had the mic like right there and you like dropped the frisbee on the mic or something um but actually like I think so I watched part of another movie of Hamaguchi's Happy Hour. It's like a four-hour movie, so I did not finish it. 
but there's like way more scenes in that movie that are kind of like intentionally done in a way that would conventionally seem like bad. Like there's like a half hour long scene that's like in a indoor environment, and like most of the shots in that scene is are like out of focus. Like the characters' faces are out of focus in like a way that looks like you just like did the scene wrong. Like you did the rack focus wrong, and <laughs> you should have like done it again, but you didn't. And so he's like a, a good director that likes likes to play with this idea of like the edge of what what you would think is like bad, like bad filmmaking, you know, forcing you to like grapple with that, I think. And I don't have a finished thought about why he does that, but it's something that I noticed in both of these movies. It's like the unfinished nature of the film or like aspects of the film that make it feel like it lacks polish, even like further go in, enhance the the theme of the film about like our own imperfections maybe oh that's really cool i watched this interview with the director and apparently in the original short story the car is not like the car it is in the movie it's like a convertible and it's yellow and there are all these changes that they had to make to the car choice because of how the director wanted to shoot like if it was a convertible even with the hood down like you wouldn't have had that isolated sonic space as victoria you're talking about so they had to have a car that didn't have a hood mm-hmm. that goes down um and then it was also interesting they changed the color of the car because since so many of the shots are like through the countryside of japan they thought the yellow would blend too much in with green, so they had to pick red instead. And I think, like, the the importance of ambient sound, like, really emphasizes and makes the, char- makes the audience pay more attention to the nonverbal actions, like we're talking about throughout this whole conversation. Um, like, when they're in the car, when they're on the road trip, I think, like, the sound the diegetic sound like completely cuts out at some points. Yeah, I keep on thinking about that Bong Joon-ho quote about the film being like the ringing of a bell. Like the what what was the quote? It was like it's like when you hit a bell and it rings for a long time. I was like, "Dang." And that made me think about like the funeral scenes and how there's like no talking during those, but they still signal this like and set up this like emotional scene of like the gongs going on in the temples and like the chimes outside. I was just gonna say that what you're saying now about the presence of gongs and diegetic noise and when it is and isn't present made me think about the fact that really there's very minimal soundtracking in this film. She provided um, music soundtrack that was used very sparingly almost throughout the whole movie there's no music to indicate to us as an audience how we should feel about different scenes or that what's happening in the scenes and that works so well i think um because music can be so manipulative it can really determine it can really cast a prescribed uh experience 
on a given scene. And so the absence of that allows us to make our own determination, our own yeah, judgment. I totally agree. That's really cool. I think it also kind of goes with like what we were talking about earlier, uh, Victoria, about the it doesn't cast judgment. It doesn't like direct exactly like you're saying. Like I think it goes along with the general tone of the film of it being non-judgmental. It doesn't cast a feeling into each scene. It doesn't like direct you. I also think it adds to the like the naturalistic kind of way it's shot and uh, all of the the filmmaking like decisions about it seem to try to bring the a naturalistic kind of perspective to to these like stories. Make it, it make it feel like you're kind of like I don't know in in a way like bringing it closer to your own real life experience. It's not some like fiction thing that's like out there that's like a fantasy world it's like something very close to some things that you experience like the real experience of being in a car like it sounds like it's not blasting you know orchestral music in the background or anything it did help me relate it closer to my life because of those decisions yeah yeah on the flip side too the soundtrack when it does play i think it's really good (laughs) it's like this such a good jazz track i like I was, like, listening to it for, like, weeks after I watched the movie. It's just so, like, calm and, like, I don't know, it just feels like going on a journey. But, like, yeah, I don't think it's, like, a very, like, obtrusive song. Like, it's, you know, it's, like, jazz. Like, it's, like, a track that kind of makes me, like, feel like it's also a little bit ambivalent, even when it does play. It's not really trying to tell you how to feel. It's so meandering. It doesn't really have, like, a consistent melodic line. It's, like, a little idea, and then another idea, and then another idea. Yeah, but I agree. It it works. It really works, and it's very pleasant. They they said on the Wikipedia page that they tried to get the rights for the Beatles song, Drive My Car, but they couldn't. And I'm like, thank God. Yeah, that would have ruined it. That would have actually ruined it. Oh, my God. thing I, I did like is like kind of like M what you were saying like I, I read a little bit of an interview with Murakami um, it was like a transcript like a translation of a some interview he gave like a Japanese radio station someone was like oh what, what did you think of Drive My Car and Burning which are like both like film adaptations of short stories of yours and he was like I love both I love how they both take my story but then like you know um, aren't afraid to like put it in a new context or really like explore like new themes with the existing framework that I that I created. So it just made me think M of like how there's like things they had to change, like the color of the car, the make of the car. I think what maybe Murakami said he liked about both movies is like they're not afraid to like be their own artistic product. I mean it's like the translation like mystery you know like the whole idea of the beauty of translation it was when i was thinking about it when i was reflecting on burning in relation to this one i was like i don't know how 
and I can't tell you what elements make them so similar in their like ambiance, but they are. Yep. Yeah, they're both Murakami. That I understand that part, but I'm saying like in both film adaptations, there's like something about them that is like so similar in the in the ambiance. That's like the only way I could describe it. It's like Murakami novels have such a distinctive vibe. I feel like both of these films really do successfully create. But then, even like, I agree, Em, like, you know that first scene where Oto is like getting up and narrating? Yes. That's like a burning yes. shot. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, I feel like it's like this. Oh, like yeah. in the morning? With the like shot? With the sunrise, sunset gradient of the sky being like the main focus? Mm-hmm. Same shot. Same shot. Both naked women having like a crazy, you know, like internal, you know, development. Like for Oto, it's like she's having this, like we discussed, like this out of body, like, oh, I'm telling this story that I can only tell when I'm having sex. And in the other movie, she's having this, like, I don't really remember what was going on with that main character at that point. I just remember it was like, she was like, I'm so sad or something, right? And then she like decides to start dancing. And then she's doing the dance of the great hunger. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's like these unknowable women that are like, um, I don't know. There's like some deep longing going on. And they are like very mysterious to the like protagonist. And they're like this unknowable I think the key word is unknowable women. Like, that's a little bit massage, but we'll just take it. Well, like, Murakami has been criticized for being, like, a huge misogynist time and time mm-hmm. again. And it's... Drive My Car actually, like, changed things so it's a little bit less apparent. <laughs> like, the entire the entire Watari element of, like, her discussing her own, like, trauma was something that they wrote for this movie that was like not in the short story oh really like in in that in that like main conversation between those two characters before they go on the road trip it's mostly still the main guy and she is just like "Uh uh-huh putting in like a couple words she doesn't talk about like how she learned how to drive through her mother like yelling at her and stuff well i don't know i i don't know all the details but i know that it was like she did not have this whole speech like she does in in the movie she's more of like a side like inserting small comments into his his story rather than like sharing her own yeah yeah that's what made that change is so crucial and changes the whole meaning of the whole thing for me that thank you for bringing that up that's mm-hmm. that's very like insightful as to like how like at, at base like they the this author changed the story in a very like fundamental way to make it about an equal parallel kind of transformation not one being like i don't know purely a vehicle for the other or just like a side character in somebody's like that's their main transformation that totally like ideologically changes the essence of the film i just read on google that the name of the short story that this based on is men without Mm. women oh Oh my god God. Uh, collection (laughs) no the short story is is named drive my car 
but the collection that the Drive My Car is in is Men Without Women. And there's, like, the characters that aren't uh, really expanded upon in Drive My Car's short story are drawn from other short stories in the collection. I think, like, I don't know, that's so amazing, like, the fact that you can take, like, a like a story that maybe is, like, a little bit, like, problematic, but, like, the way that you change it can, like, can, like, rectify it. Like, so, like it can, like, right the wrongs of it, basically. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, it can, like, correct it in a really... And, like, subvert it in a way. The original text. That's very cool. Also, in the interview I watched with Hamaguchi, he was saying... I'm not sure, because I've not read the short stories, but... He was saying how after he read Men Without Women, he wanted to explore what would happen to the characters after those stories ended. And that's how he like came up with how to do like Drive My Car as a film. Like he wanted to explore like the actors' lives post because I, I I don't even I don't know if the like actor element is even in the short stories. I don't know. He, like, added a lot. That's all I'm saying. It's so funny how how so many films are really this process of, like, the film per- director reading a book, and then maybe they take a little element or a lot of the, the book and make it into the second piece of art, the, the film. Like, like, just say, for example, like, Stanley Kubrick, that's every single one of his films is based off a book, but he makes the film like very different like maybe even the main point is different there yeah it's kind of interesting to see that process being so like ubiquitous yeah it reminds me of arrival too which is based on like a very short short story by ted Chiang, and then became like you know huge epic this is like give me a kernel and then you just make your own thing but yeah, it's kind of inspirational to see how, like, artists, re- like, are relating to each other and, like, transforming the meaning into, like, their own, like, creation. Um, and maybe people would be upset by the fact that it's different than the book, but, like, I'm starting to see how, like, amazing that is. Again, with the idea of, like, translation being, like, your own contribution to the meaning. Yeah. I think this conversation makes me want to watch it again. Because there's, I wish I saw it three times because I feel like, like you said, Anna, this is a film that really makes you reflect on yourself. And I've been reflecting on it and I guess like my my interpretation of it since I saw it like a month ago. Yeah, given this conversation, I would really like to see it again because I think there's still a lot of potential internal like work to be done thanks to this film yeah i i also feel the same way i remember when i first watched it i was asked like what do you think i couldn't find the words i could not articulate my thoughts i couldn't articulate my feelings and it was one of those films that like evolved in your mind like over time and you began maybe you like understood part like the film like a week later after it's been like in your subconscious like rolling over in your head and i think that is such a amazing achievement for a piece of art and something that you're you can't you can't put it into bullet points when you first see it um it's something that's entering you at different levels at levels you're not even aware of at the time but it is happening it really does like 
confront you with yourself. It's about you and yourself and that relationship evolving and your own self-understanding evolving. And I think that's, to me, what makes it such such a amazing and successful like piece of art and what good art should be like and is like. And I really feel like it, it was like a, um, like a, like kind of like a teacher, like a teacher you could like, a teacher could give you bullet points. Sure, that's one way of teaching, but it's not very good. Um, but a book or a film or a piece of art teaches you, shows you the door to your own self. And it doesn't tell you anything about like what to do or it's not didactic in that way. It's a pedagogy in empathy, how to find a way to like be in this life in a way that has like deep equanimity and awareness and like understanding. So it was truly a gift from the filmmaker and all the people who contributed to making it um, that I feel like really helped me uh, evolve in a certain way. And I will continue to think about it and evolve from it. Well, I totally agree. And it was a, I mean, there's a reason I saw it three times. It was a journey each time and a journey like Kafuku discovering and accepting the self and accepting circumstances in my life that are beyond my control and learning to see it all as part of a larger a larger journey. And this was great. This made a number of things. I mean, I feel like I watched it, but then like each time I watched it, like all my thoughts were very like unformed. I just had like ideas that were kind of like linked to feelings and linked to moments. So this was super helpful just in terms of understanding like how well constructed this film is and how like we all like pulled like elements of it that were interesting and somehow like all related even if they were like subjected. I agree with everything that you said. It's a, a, a stunning piece of art, stunning uh, exploration of identity and empathy and our flawed but beautiful lives. And I also think that I have come to understand much more about it in this conversation. So thank you everyone for bringing your insights and your ideas about this film. I feel like like Kafuku understood more about himself with Misaki. I also understood more about this film and about myself from engaging in conversation with you all. So this was great. Well, thank you guys for coming to this podcast and contributing your thoughts. And I'm excited to continue to grow together with you in friendship and self-understanding. <laughs>